Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm on a bit of a road trip today, and if that doesn't serve as a clue to the listener, the title of the novel might. We ate the road like vultures, and the author is Lynette Lounsbury. So, Lynette, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, we need a bit of a background, I think, in terms of the road, and it's all, this book is almost like an appeal to Jack Kuriak. What's going on? Well, I read On the Road when I was 16, so I was young and I'd read a lot of very boring books before that at my local school library, found this on the road and read it and it was like a revelation. I'd never read anything like it. The idea of the just going wherever you wanted and doing whatever you wanted. But that sort of comes up in in the writing style as well. Mm. So what are the elements then? What was the movement of which he was part? Well, he's generally considered the father of the beat generation. Um, It was a movement of 50s and 60s writers who just um, moved away from traditional structures with writing and wrote uh, stream of consciousness, really high pace, less punctuation, less grammar. They just wrote feelings. And I love it. It's got such a high energy to it. It pulls you into the text and you feel the words as much as you feel what the words are saying. But I would argue that it still conforms to a lot of traditions, the imagery. There's a structure in the novel uh, that you have, which we'll get to eventually. So how unconventional was it? I think that there's um, a lack of convention in the, the way it's written too. I know with Kerouac's On the Road, he wrote it in a couple of weeks and he wrote it on a reel of paper that was stuck together so that he didn't have to change the sheets on his typewriter. And I wrote, not quite that dramatically, but I wrote it this very quickly without, without a lot of planning or thought. I just let it fall out. And there's something that about that um, where you find connections you didn't expect, where your characters say things you didn't expect, um, it comes to you in a different way, this unplanned writing. Also, the imagery is at times unconventional as well, but it allows you to see things in a new way. So we're sort of talking in riddles at the moment. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just read the opening of the novel and then we can uh, break it down and, um, well, the listener can make up their own mind. By the way, I should mention that you do begin with a biblical quote. I do. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, which fits in nicely because this uh, defies belief at times, except it eventually makes sense. So here we go with the opening. I knew it was the right place as soon as I saw the giant bull moose up to its hairy antique carpet haunches in a semi-inflated children's swimming pool. Water was sneaking over the side to run for its life into the firebrand sand that hissed and rolled in waves all around the sprawled sunburnt house. The pool was under two of those trees, the type that stagger across the whole of Mexico and cast about as much shade as a Maasai warrior, Booja trees. Booja? I'd heard the driver of the rattle tin bus say the word at least a hundred 
of times during the six-hour dust bowl drive, but he had so few teeth and so much tobacco in his gums I could scarcely figure a word of what he said, except when he told me I owed him another ten bucks just to get off the bus off a bus that had only the merest suggestion there had ever been vinyl over its rusted spring seats, which sang their own tuneless song as we jounced over stray dogs, rocks and children to finally stop there at the right house. Bull Moose, Mexico, inflated swimming pool. What the hell is going on? Well, that's that's what I want you to think. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but but that's it. That's all part of the style. Mm. This can't possibly occur and exist. And yet you're teasing the reader? I guess. It's, I, it's absurd, but then I try to make sure that it's it could make sense. Well, it does make sense and so eventually. The, the whole notion of whether you believe it or not, you're in a parallel journey with Lulu about whether she believes it or not, and Adolf, who believes anything. Hmm. My well, characters are about you know what they believe and what they don't. Well, we're starting to get into characters there, but just before we mm. do, let's sort of explore this little extract. As mm. I say, a, a bull moose... Uh, we, we'll eventually have an elephant running at the, mm-hmm. the mud brick house. But we're in Mexico. Yeah. Now, we eventually find out how that is possible. So it does make logical mm. sense eventually, just not now. Mm. And I'm just wondering what that does to the reader, what um, and, and how indicative that is of our own world. Well, I hope also part of the idea of this unbelievable things is that I try to pace them in a way that you're already past it before you have time to think about it too much. So just in the back of your mind is this idea of, hang on, that didn't make sense, a moose and then a landmine and then, you know, a, can- a kangaroo and an elephant. It's, well, what? I forgot the what? kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> but if, if the reader paused to think about it, um, they could probably come up with something an explanation for it but we find ourselves immediately in this story Mm. and so if if an alien came down to earth and saw donald trump they think what the hell's going on sort of thing um we have those situations all the time we've Mm. got to acclimatize to the situation to understand it and then we're involved in it Mm. that's the first thing the second thing is then these uh interesting um, images, so um, it cast about as much shade as a Maasai warrior. Uh, so all of a sudden, you've got an African reference. The uh, during the six-hour dust bowl drive, these extended sort of images. By the way, I'm an English teacher, or have mm-hmm. a pass there. So I'm sort of. I was an English teacher too. <laughs> <laughs> Commiserations, yeah. you managed to get out. So did I. Um, so. You know, these long extended uh, images, etc., um, which are, are they unconventional or just eccentric? How would you describe them? Well, the character, the voice, is an eccentric person. She has to be because I want her to believe that Jack Kerouac could still be alive. Hmm. So she has to see things differently to other people. So I created a character who sees things within her experience, so she's only 16 at the start and from a very small place on the north coast, which is where where I went to high school, so I understand that small world. 
And so she just sees things according to the things she knows. Mm. Mm. Well, I guess we better get into the characters. So you've already sort of uh, mentioned some of them. Lulu, Mm -hmm. 16, she's on a quest. What is that quest? She has read Jack Kerouac's work, fallen in love with it. And then she's read some new writing that she thinks sounds like him. She thinks he's still alive and hiding out somewhere traces him to Mexico and goes to hunt him down. Now, she'd previously been on a bit of a quest as well. Mm. What, who was that for? To see if Bruce Lee was still alive. And she discovered? He was not. <laughs> he was not. But it was a, success, a successful journey yes. because she proved he wasn't. Yes. But again, it goes into this whole notion of uh, the sort of conspiracy theories mm. that we have, which exist. So yeah. it's it's plausible, especially Mm -hmm. for a 16-year-old. But how much then, because of what you were saying before Mm -hmm. about being 16 and discovering Jack, how much of you is in Lulu? A lot. A lot. I'm a martial artist, so I've been to Bruce Lee's grave. I've been on that quest. Was he he alive? No, no, he was not alive, unfortunately. Um, She's me if I lost my pragmatism, my desire to actually survive in life <laughs> and just did what I ever, you know, what I thought of doing. Well, she takes off. She's independent. She's got um, a tenacity about her, though she does come into some quite confronting situations. Mm. She ends up in a Mexican jail at one stage. Um, and um, page 165, there is also a reason why uh, she is in many ways, on this quest, Mm. um, which is interesting. Um, But here's the bit about Lulu. It was my birthday the other day. I'm 17. I had almost forgotten about that, and it was not a thing a girl should forget, 17 being what it is, one moment closer to the end of the Interpol searches. Now, you can make love to the German and he won't get arrested, Carousel swigged and winked at me. Piss off. I glanced to my side, but Adolf had his maps on the bar and was showing the barman and another patron the shrines he had circled. How did your mother die? What? He didn't ask it again, and he wasn't looking at me, but it hung there like Christmas lights and blinked, waiting for someone to notice. I'm not really a talker, not a speaker of my own stories. It's just not the way my voice wants to go. It cracks and stutters and gets tangled on its own insignificance. I didn't want to tell him, didn't know if he deserved to know, but perhaps I owed him a story for his time and the upside down I'd given him, or perhaps there is a time when everyone is drinking warm beer in a black cave and finds themselves answering questions that never see the light of day. She's on a quest in some ways to not just discover Bruce Lee or Jack Kuriak, but this sort of, on a, uh, she's lost her mother. Mm. So that sort of fills in a, a psychological yeah. profile for her as well. Yeah. And therefore, all of a sudden, it makes sense that impetuosity has another dimension, mm. which is, is fascinating. Perhaps I might be giving too much away. No, I don't think so. I think, you know, that's it's not a big reveal. But she's very, um, she doesn't believe that her mother's dead. She doesn't want to believe it. And the circumstances of her mother being a wanderer who used to vanish for periods of time, um, she sees that in herself. And I think she probably doesn't like the connection, but there's the idea that maybe that's what her mother's done, just wandered off. But all of a sudden this road trip has a psychological dimension. It's not just someone Mm. taking off, I'm carefree, I'm casual. 
there is an impetus behind it as well, which makes it a more profound journey yeah. in that regard. She feels like she has to know the truth about things. She just can't let them go. I'm now going to go into another character here, Adolf. <laughs> Adolf was 20 and the only son of neo-fascist political activists, hence the name. It can't have been an easy name to grow up with, even in neo-weirdo circles, but fortunately he was very intelligent, his words, not mine, and knew that not everyone shared his parents' atheistic, racist, socialist and quite angry view of the world. At 18, when he had finished his homeschooling, he was spotted at a violent protest by an Israeli journalist whose girlfriend was a modelling agent and who offered him a modelling career in Israel. The most rebellious thing the child of Nazis could ever do would be a capitalist career working for Jews. He had not been back since. I send postcards and I'm very informative about where I am and what I'm doing, but I think to them I am probably better dead, he smiled casually. They might even try to kill me themselves. He laughed at this extraordinarily unfunny joke and kept going with his story. I was not into the modelling, so boring and everyone was too friendly and strange. He looked for understanding and Chico and Carousel nodded in what I guessed was fictional simpatico, but perhaps fame had made people too friendly and strange for them as well. I nodded in ignorance. Adolf continued, so I went and lived at one of the Jewish farms for another year. It was there that I learned about Jesus Christ and became a Christian. How on earth do you invent something like that, a character like that? I kind of let him say whatever came out. I didn't censor him and I I started with the name Adolf and then I just went from there and I kept thinking what's the worst thing he could be to his parents because everyone has that thought the worst thing your kids could be and I thought the worst thing he could be would be a Christian really mm -hmm. a Jewish Christian almost well so. I, but here you go it, it keeps breaking conventions I mean mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden he's a model so it's it's commercial and, and, and yep. capitalist but he defies that he then um, become well on a kibbutz where he becomes a, a Christian which is an anomaly to say mm -hmm. the least but what sort of Christianity is it it's a completely made up one and he's he believes it wholeheartedly and then everyone thinks it's fictional and then it turns out that there's something there. Well, but basically, it accounts for his road trip, so to speak. So what's mm. he on the road trying to do? He's trying to find a shrine in the Baja from when Jesus was on his journey through Mexico. And it's it's not just the one shrine. No. Uh, and there's, according to the book, there's one in Tasmania. Yep. Just, Jesus got around a bit. He did. <laughs> he did. Adolf identifies with Jesus as a man who was trying to escape parents who were trying to make him save the Jews. Well, that that fits the Christian story because he sort of um, sort of defied his parents at one stage and and mm -hmm. went to the temple or whatever. Um, but here we go. How plausible is uh, Adolf's quest? Not very at all. And I didn't want it to be plausible because I really wanted people to see that that idea of really believing in something that doesn't make sense out of the context of Christianity as it is now because we're so familiar with that. And I thought if I take it out further, you can look at belief in a different way. Well, I, I would say it is plausible because, I mean, it's what a lot of people do. I mean, Monty Python did, mm. did the thing with, you know, follow the gourd, no, follow the sandal. I know yeah. the true Messiah. I, I should know I've followed enough of them sort of thing. Yeah. And it's what 
people actually do. They fabricate, invent, uh, and it's stranger than any fiction we could write, except mm. you've, you've sort of managed to capture <laughs> it a little because people are on a quest yeah. to find uh, a sacred site and get quite overwrought yeah. uh, at these sort of moments. The levels of belief that people can have around these sort of things are incredible. They are they're almost concrete levels of belief. Something happened because they believed it, and that's what I wanted. You wanted Adolf to show that idea. If you believe it, it happened for you. And and therefore, well, you know, faith can move mountains, and it actually does because people believe in it so strongly. Mm. Then you know, it's the placebo effect and all of these sorts of things. So, and then yes, they invent the religion, or the religion expands with the human imagination in mm. many ways. Yeah. Um, and so, in many ways, I find Adolf a very plausible character. And he's good for the old guys because they're cynics, old cynics by, you know, their mid-80s. Well, I, I better explain. We better explain. We better get on to Chico yeah. and Carousel. <laughs> Who have we got here? We have Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy. And we've sort of mentioned a little about mm. Jack. Uh, Neil? Neil was um, Jack's best friend. He's um, in many of Jack's books, either as a fictional character or as himself. And he's kind of the catalyst for their crazy journeys. And so I, I thought we couldn't have Jack Kerouac alive in Mexico without Neil. Hmm. So I put them both there. Put them both there. You also then introduce another little uh, possibility. Uh, is it Butch Cassidy or the Sundance Kid? Mm -hmm. Both. <laughs> both. Because there is, uh, well, it's not exactly a conspiracy theory, but people have put it out there that... Um, the uh, that they lived, they went down to mm. South America, and you know they lived out their lives rather than die, as we saw in the film in yep. in great glory. What is it about the human imagination that makes us do that? I don't even know, but it's a wonderful thing. Dangerous thing. As it's well, a dangerous right? thing. People do very strange things for belief that things they think are true, but I also wanted to show that everybody, even the most pragmatic smart person has their stupid thing that they believe. But it's not necessarily stupid. If we go according to what you've written with mm. a bull moose in a mm. swimming pool, in, a, in a, an inflated pool in Mexico, it's impossible. Yeah. Except it is it possible. Is possible. So you've shown that it could happen. Therefore, why not have Jack Kuriak come back to life, mm. Butch Cassidy sitting out there somewhere, living out his days, or Bruce Lee deciding to chase... Elvis, he's, yeah. he's still around. He, oh, there was <laughs> plenty to choose from, yeah. So it it could well... It, it doesn't take that great a leap in many ways for us to defy reality mm. in some yeah. ways. So it's, it's mar marvellous. We've also got then Rita. Mm. Who is Rita? Where is Rita? And what purpose does she serve in the novel? Um, I don't know why I wrote her into it. I had Lulu in the bath thinking back on being on the bus and sitting next to this woman who casually admitted to her that she thought she might have killed her husband and so she stole all this money and ran away. And there's more to it than that, but she's not necessarily the bad guy. 
But then she just kind of vanished from the story and I wasn't sure even why she came up. Or um, And then later on they needed to find somewhere to stay and she just comes back and I went, that's Rita. But it serves, well, to my English teacher mind, as a structural device in mm. some ways that unifies everything. But it's also because she is a recollection. Lulu's in the bath. She remembers somebody she's met. So it's a, re- a reflection going back, uh, which is in uh, sort of direct opposition to then the opening of the novel where we're in the middle of a situation mm. And all of these threads actually resolve eventually. Mm. We get the explanation for the bull moose, the elephant, and the kangaroo, um, which uh, the kangaroo smokes cigarettes, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> and the car didn't have a bull bar, which was a bit of a problem. Mm. Um, but then this reflection, which actually comes back in the end. So it follows. It does. A and sort I of neat honestly structure. didn't structure it. I let it flow and she came back organically when I needed her, which was interesting to me as a writer because other things I've written I've plotted quite carefully. This I didn't at all. So it's amazing how stories resolve themselves sometimes. So were you in control of this story or was it in control of you? Yeah, I don't know that I was all the time. Adolf was a surprise. What were you in control of then? Lulu. Lulu. Yeah. And everything around Lulu is crazy and falls apart and she has to deal with a lot of things. So I just stayed with Lulu and watched what happened. What about then the writing style, your use of imagery and things like that, which are uh, extreme? Is that too hard a word or inventive or original? I hope it's original Mm. because I want – she's very adamant she's not a writer and so I wanted her to sound in her writing as someone who – wasn't a writer and didn't write the conventional way. But she's also someone who loves Kerouac's writing. So I thought, well, she's, she writes in a way that would represent someone who loves his writing. It's frenetic, it's fast, it's lateral. She makes strange connections. But in, in many ways, that's what a writer does. That, mm. that notion of making strange connections to see things in a new and original way. So is that the sort of contribution uh, Jack made to... Yes, I think so. Do many writers use it today? Do you th- yeah, I think there's much more uh, variety in writing now. There's people who write beautifully structured, you know, amazingly um, tight pieces. But there's lots of people writing rambling, crazy things. But there's still an element of control. You, you, mm. you sort of still, as I say... There is a structure, and there was my phone, and I do apologise. There is a structure that is present uh, here. Mm. Now, is that because you've got that background in English? Probably. And and so it just comes out. It's organic, I guess. You can't control that. Yeah, amazing. Um, How do we end this interview? As in uh, the chaos of the story... Does it have a resol- Does the story have a resolution? Do you think it has a type of resolution? Mm-hmm. Um, well, for now, it's for, a for now resolution. So is there going to be? She a finishes sequel? this quest. Well, I think Lulu needs to go and look for her mother. Come on, disciples! The road smells lonely, which is the last line of the novel, and it's as if well, we've got to go on the road again mm. uh, and find another 
situation. Who's she going to look for next? Her mum. Uh, yeah, definitely. Her mum. Oh, right. Yeah. So that could be uh, quite an interesting read. The novel, We Ate the Road Like Vultures. The author, Lynette Lounsbury. And it's from... Now, let me get the publishing house because is it there? It Because it's a new publishing house, isn't mm-hmm. it? It And uh, my eyesight is failing. Um, it is Inkerman and Blunt. Inkerman and Blunt Publishers. 